Luke 11, breaking in at verse 29 and reading to verse 36. And when the people were gathered thick together, he began to say, This is an evil generation. They seek a sign, and there shall no sign be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was a sign unto the Ninevites, so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, the greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, for they repent at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, a greater than Jonah is here. No man, when he hath lighted a candle, putteth it in a secret place, neither under a bushel, but on a candlestick, that they which come in see the light. The light of the body is the eye. Therefore, when thine eye is single, thy whole body also is full of light. But when thine eye is evil, thy body also is full of darkness. Take heed, therefore, that the light which is in thee be not darkness. If thy whole body, therefore, be full of light, having no part dark, the whole shall be full of light, as when, a, as when the bright shining of a candle doth give thee light. And you may be seated. Greetings to one and all this morning. Good to see the house so well filled and good to see a number of faces that I recognize from years gone by. You're still here. And, uh, but many new ones too. Younger ones that have come on that I don't really relate to. It's been a while since we've been here. Greetings from Auburn, Nebraska. Our address is Humboldt, a little town further south. We have a congregation there for an attendance, oh, something like 75 or 80, something like that, and uh, some more new families coming in, the way it sounds, the way it looks. Nebraska is a long ways from here. It's about, I would guess, right at 1,200 miles, pretty well straight west, a little bit south where you are now. We live in southeastern Nebraska. My wife and I live down in Richardson County, which is down in the very southeastern part, as far as you can go. We live 15 miles north of the Kansas line, and we live 15 miles west of the Missouri River. So it gives you an idea geographically where we are. Highway 75 goes right by our place, and uh, we are straight north of Topeka, Kansas. And that 75 runs from Topeka up to Omaha. The traffic is mostly grain haulers, semi-tractor uh, uh, trailers hauling grain, coming and going. A lot of uh, livestock haulers, these big what the um, uh, trailers, what triple deck, some of them that, that they call pot haulers. And uh, and then we also have a lot of traffic of these big um, uh, wind generators, uh, big long uh, assemblies going by with escorts hauling the center stem that holds them up, these big tubes. And those things are huge when you see them down on the ground. When you drive where you see them from a distance, they don't look that big. But those veins, each one of those veins is 137 feet uh, long. And so it takes long trailers and conveyances to haul all that. So there's a busy road going by our place. So you think we live in a busy place, but we don't have one neighbor that we can see from where we live. Uh, so it's kind of wide open there where we are. And if you go west from us, you don't need to go very far until you start seeing, uh, oh, about, by you get time you get to the middle of the state, uh, about Nebraska's around 400 miles long. And you get to the middle of the state, start seeing sagebrush, and, uh, and jackrabbits, and from there on, that's about it. It all looks pretty well the same. In western Nebraska, we have fertile ground close to the Wyoming border. There's where you see the big center pivots that will cover an entire section except for the corners. 
and uh, they're the raised corn that will raise, make up 300 bushels to the acre. The ground must be very fertile. All you need to do is get water to it. So we have quite a variation. Up in north central Nebraska, north of the uh, Platte River, there's what they call the Sand Hills region. And uh, this is a huge area, a large area, where, where the rainfall does not run off, it just goes down into the sand. And the water table of that area, they say, is the same level as the Platte River itself. So that area extends over into eastern Wyoming, what they call the Agalala Aquifer. This is underground water. This stretches down through eastern Wyoming, south through eastern Colorado, western Kansas, western Nebraska, western uh, Oklahoma, down into the Oklahoma Panhandle, parts of it into New Mexico, all called the same uh, Agalala, which is a uh, sub nation of Indians, the Agalala Aquifer. Many thousands of people make their living off of that underground water. It seems strange to me for someone who has been traveled a lot in his time, I've been all over the country, I've been in every state in the Union except Hawaii. And I've been in other parts of the world too, in other countries. It seems strange to hear the story that I heard just not too long ago of a man who lived up in north central Nebraska uh, in the Sand Hills region, and he lived on a ranch of several hundred thousand acres, a big one. And uh, he died at the age of 93, and not once in that man's lifetime had he ever set foot off of his own ranch. And I just could not relate to that. I just about said I've never heard anything like that before. Well, they say truth is stranger than fiction, and indeed sometimes it is. We need to get with the message. Um, Good to be here again this morning, as I've said, and good to see familiar faces. I don't know where all we're going. <laughs> I never use much of the line of notes, just write down some references and go from there. I've found out that too many notes get me confused, so it uh, interrupts my train of thought. Um, probably a lot of this comes from my old order days when I preached in the Amish churches. Still, by preaching in the German language once in a while, which I do, it happens that here now and then, and uh, in church groups that like it that way. All right, um, I'd like to speak on the subject of light this morning. We know that Jesus is the light of the world. And we have a scripture that says that the people that have sat in the shadow of darkness, before them there has gone up a great light. And I'd like to read out of the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And we'll just start at verse 1, the first chapter. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was said to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Many years ago in England, there was a man by the name of George Fox. He was the man that uh, was the originator of the people called the Quakers. And the most famous Quaker of all time probably was the man called William Penn, in whom the state of Pennsylvania is named after, of course. Now, what do the Quakers believe? They based their religion, their belief, mostly uh, on verse 9 here in, first in the first chapter of John, verse 9. That was that true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So what do we mean when we say this? They come together in their meeting, and everybody sits there in silence. And finally, somebody receives some inspiration of some things that they would like, feel is necessary to be said. In other words, they are enlightened. They have received the light, so they want to stand up and tell the others about it. It might be a man, it might be a woman, from what I understand. And this is basically their, their religion, their belief that we are just enlightened by the light. Now, how far they take this as, as far as Jesus Christ being Lord and Master of their life, I'm not here to tell you. I really don't know that much. 
beyond that what I know from what I've just said. But it says he was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. Isn't that unique? In the first chapter of the Bible, we read about how in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was empty and void without form. And the Spirit had moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God called it good. Now, God cannot be anywhere that there's no light. He will say, let there be light. And there is light. In heaven, we read this in the book of Revelation, if I have it right, and that is that there is no need of the sun there because he is the light, he himself. And so there will be no shadow nor variableness of turning like the scripture says elsewhere and in his ways of doing, his way of working in the hearts of men. One morning when I was just a boy at home, now this just gets and comes to my mind just now, uh, we as a family were sitting around the table reading our, taking our turn reading our verse out of the Bible. We had gotten done with the gospel of, of Luke and now we're starting into John. And so we read the first chapter of John. We get to verse 9. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. I remember my older brother asking dad, what do you make of that? What does that say? What does that mean? And dad thought a little bit and he said he's noticed that himself already. That the true light which lighteth every man cometh into the world. He said it would appear seemingly you might causes us to think that every individual in, that's ever been born into this world and grows up into years of understanding and of accountability. There will be a time in that individual's life where something will come to him and will move him to seek after this something that he knows not of. He gets the feeling there's something out here that I don't know about, and I would like to know more. It could all be. I'm not taking that away. That could all be. God in his grace and his mercy and his goodness, indeed, we, we preach it all the time, that God does not see fit that any man would be lost. Amen, brother? So then we say, well, what about the young man in Africa one night? He was a chief's son. He climbed the highest tree that he could find. It was full moon. And he reached out to the full moon and he said, Oh God, he said, if there is a God. He said, save my soul if I have one. Well, that's getting quite primitive, isn't it? You would say, is that all he knew? Well, at that time it was. There was a war and he was captured. And he was beaten every day in order to get his father, who was from the other tribe, who had lost him to the enemy, to get him to raise the ransom to, in order to bring him back home again. That's what it was all about. And one day, as the beating was going on and he was suffering this intense pain again, it seemed like he heard a voice that said, all of a sudden, it said, run. And his bonds fell off of him and he took off down the trail as hard as he could go and his pursuers could not catch him. And he ran and he ran and he ran. And he finded up deep into the jungle, heart of jungle, hardly knew where he was. And he kept saying, uh, if there's a light, would you guide me to it? Or if, if there's something, I need help. I need a way to find my way out of this. And he wandered into a mission compound somewhere. They took this beating, beaten up boy, bruised and bleeding, took mercy on him and brought him in. And not only did they doctor his wounds, but they did what they could to heal a wounded heart. He had known nothing but suffering and pain and bloodshed all his life. Nothing but wars and tribulations and all those things that come out of wars. And he was searching for a true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And he found what he was looking for. He wanted to come to the United States. Well, they said, to do that, you need to get on board a ship. One day he turned up missing. He was gone. He made his way out to the ship, and there was out there in the ocean, not far off the coast, there was just a leading of God. This is an amazing story. You probably maybe have already read it, and I, haven't, I don't even have the book at home anymore. I don't know where it got to, but anyway, he hailed the vessel, and they sent in a rowboat to get, pick him up, take him out on the ship. Turned out to be, of all things, a pirate ship. Well, you know what a pirate ship is. It's just a bunch of outlaws that rob other ships that are out on the ocean. That makes them pirates. That's what they were. A rough crew of cutthroats, dangerous people to be around, including the captain. This poor, helpless, defenseless boy gets on board that ship. 
who are you? And he said, he told him what his name was and, and whatever it was anymore. And uh, where do you come from? From over there. And my father's the king of a certain nation. Well, that's a long ways from here. Where do you want to go? And he said, I want to go to the United States. Oh, what do you want there? Well, there's more people there that I would learn more about what I've heard so far. And what is that? And then he told him. And he was very earnest about it. And in his limited knowledge that he had of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, it seemed like the message of salvation began to get a hold of everybody on board that ship. And by the time they came to the shores of this country, what, can you believe it, they all got converted. He was so honest and so faithful and so sincere, they saw in him no potential for an enemy at all. Why be afraid of him? They weren't afraid of him. They had the guns and the knives and the clubs and you name it, and he had nothing. But he had something that was more powerful than anything they had. That was light. God works in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He came to this country, ended up in Indianapolis, Indiana, if I have the, right, the name right, and he went to a seminary there. And after a while, he caught a disease. I think it was maybe diphtheria or whatever it was. And he died from it at the young age of in his 20s somewhere. His American name was Samuel Morris. How many of you have ever heard of him? I see a number of hands. I don't know if I have the account quite right or not, but that's what I remember. But here we are talking about light. Well, Christ came into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, the same world that he had created as, with, as a part of the trinity of the Godhead. But it says the world knew him not. He came into his own, and his own received him not. He had come to bring salvation into the world, and they did not know who he was, and so many of them did not want to know. But it, in verse 12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Well, we could take that a little bit further. Yeah, and there's a lot of food for thought further on down that passage of Scripture. But um, when we get to talking about light... In the physical sense, it would be dark in here today if we didn't have lights to help light this place up. And, uh, but there's a certain amount of light outside. And uh, there was a University of Heidelberg, Germany some years ago, uh, about the year of 1921, I believe it was, and the professor was giving a lecture. And finally, he was saying this, teaching the laws of physics, and he said, now, he said, what is... The, the definition of darkness. Can anybody tell me what is the definition of darkness? And he kept asking the question. And the students were sitting there in his audience looking at each other and mulling over the question in their minds. How do we answer this? Finally, there was a young man towards the back raised his hand and he said, yes, what do you have to say? And he said, it's the, uh, the absence of darkness I mean, uh, darkness, the definition of darkness is the absence of light, if I get it said right. The definition of darkness is the absence of light. So when the light comes in, the darkness is gone, right? Simple as that. Who is the young man? You all know his name. He was just a young man at the time, but his name was Albert Einstein. And I thought to myself, you know... Here the rest of them were all trying to think of some complication, uh, complicated equation of some kind to come up with as to explain this phenomenon. And the young man had a very simple answer. Brethren, it's that way today in our own spiritual lives, if you please. And that is, if we experience darkness in our souls, it's because of the absence of the light of the world that we need in this soul here, right here within. And, and, and what is a soul? Well, that soul is you. That personality is your soul. It's the way that you have developed, the way you are. That's the kind of a soul you have. As a soul, as a God-given thing that you are, God gave you a personality. He made you different. He made you unique from everybody else. There's no two people in this world that I know of that are exactly alike, that they look perfectly alike, that they cannot be discerned. Sometimes they come close. But still, they are individual people. 
And we all have that immortal soul that has begin to, uh, been given to us. And that soul is going to live in darkness until it accepts the, the lordship of Christ in their lives and surrenders to him and their wholeheartedly and, uh, and, and as much as they possibly can be for the one that suffered and died for them. That's Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Years ago, there was this young Mennonite girl by the name of Christmas Carol Kaufman. And at that time, that was probably in the early 50s when I first began to hear of her and of her ability to write very interesting books that caught the attention of many people. The first one that she wrote, I'm not sure it was Light from Heaven, the first one, or was it Lucy Winchester, but I know the one Light from Heaven is the one that caught the interest of the most people. And just a book, in a sense, fiction, but it was based on true happiness, on true happenings. And we, this young boy grew, was born into a home where he was not wanted by his father. And he was abused, mostly verbal abuse more than anything else. And so he lived a very uh, discouraged time in those early years. Uh, uh, finally, he was old enough to understand a few things. He was in a Sunday school class for children. He's around six or so. And his Sunday school teacher sensed that this child is a very forlorn child. He, he lived in the midst of a lot of spiritual darkness as far as his own earthly father was concerned. He did have a godly mother. It was all based on a true happening. That school teacher gave that child a little motto, a picture to hang on the wall in his bedroom. It was one of those kind that absorbs the light of day and when it gets dark, it's fluorescent. I'm not, not quite sure if I have the right word there or not, but you know what, uh, and you don't see those uh, kind in it so much anymore as what you do when I was younger. After he went to bed, he could look up at the wall and there was this little lamb laying down and across behind it illuminated. And above that it said, Jesus, the light of the world. And that boy grew up with that hanging on the wall in his bedroom. And he got comfort from it. He got hope from it. His mother used to tell him, Jesus can see you no matter how dark your bedroom is. Jesus can see you. And that little motto on the wall helped to reinforce that concept in the mind of that child and it helped to bring him on through. That he ended up with the faith of his mother, which seemingly his father did not have much of. The rest is history. But the concept of light, we notice now what it means. In Isaiah uh, chapter 9, we have the, uh, we have the, the, the prophecy of the birth of Christ. And... Uh, in that prophecy in chapter 9, I think I'm going to just turn over to it quick. We have the thought being given that um, we have sometimes it just gets me to me a little when you read in verse 2 in chapter 9, how the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. And they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. How many millions are out there today? But I know something else too. And stop and think about it. Christian Aid Ministries, to my surprise here a while back when I called to Berlin, Ohio and talked with one of their administrators there and I said I understand you're in, in about 35 countries he said you are way behind I said how many then he said 102 oh and I said and who are they he said that's classified information I can't tell you that I, I'm not allowed to okay I understand that too but you know brethren there are 209 countries in the world today that I can think of that are called sovereign nations and is the light going to all those nations? In Matthew 24, we read that the gospel of this kingdom, and is, these are the words of Jesus and a prophecy of the end time. 
How close are we to that end time today? Brethren, I don't know, but I do know this. I used to hear the preachers talk about it when I was a boy 60-some years ago, and I understood what they said when they said, we're getting close. It just could be any day. And here we are all these years later, and we're still saying the same thing, are we not? Yes, we are. Why? Because it's a good thing to do. We need to understand that this world is such a temporal thing, this thing could collapse and fall apart any moment. And the Son of God appear in the heavens in great power and great glory. So then it is necessary. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. That meant the children of Israel and others too. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. And now then he said unto us, a child is born in verse 6. Unto us his son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. I can back up a little bit here when we say, Unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And then we'll take the phrase in his government, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful. We'll just think about the government on the shoulder as a part of that and leave that for some other time. Let's look at this government. What was that government? Well, he was a ruler of the universe. He was a part of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, a part of the Trinity of the Godhead. And the one that carried the cross to Calvary was the one that did this. And that government that he had on his shoulder was a cross. The government was the cross and the cross was the government. They were interchangeable. They were one and the same. What did he mean when he talked to his disciples long before he ever went to the cross? He talked to them, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to follow me, there were people that would come to him and say, well, I want to follow you. He said, all right, you can follow, but take that cross upon you and follow me, for I'm meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. My cross is, I'm weak and meek and lowly, and uh, my cross and my burden is light. Well, that government, he carried it on that day on the way to Calvary. This man had been beaten up severely by the Roman soldiers that Pilate had appointed to beat him up. The mob beat him up. On the way to Calvary, they were slugging him in the face with their fists and say, prophesying to us, tell us who hit you. And other awful things like that. The crown of thorns that he had on his head that caused the blood to run down over his face weakened him. He had already lost some blood. He was weaker and weaker. And the cross was not light to begin with. Finally, it was more than flesh and blood could do to bear that burden, and he collapsed. And he fell to the ground, and he couldn't get up again. The Roman soldiers looked at each other. If we're not careful here, we don't have anything left to crucify. And so they picked the man out of the crowd. They, they impressed him into service. Here, you carry this cross. Do you think Simon of Cyrene wanted to do that? How was he going to know that they weren't going to nail him another one too yet? He wanted probably no part of this. But whether he did or not, he took that cross and he wore that cross. And his sons could run along the side Two boys by the name of Rufus Alexander, looking at their dad, carrying that cross, looking at each other, and shocked and full of horror and horror filled. What do you think is going to happen next? I can believe that. I can visualize the thing in my mind, what that would have been like. We read somewhere further back in the New Testament of, of uh, Paul, I think, make the words, the statement. He said, and send my greetings to Rufus. I don't know if that was the same Rufus or not, but I'm not, it could have been. It could have been because that experience of Rufus and Alexander seeing the cross being carried to Calvary probably left a lasting impression on them the rest of their lives. I can believe that. I can see no reason why not. And maybe they too became cross-bearing Christians later on in their life. The government was on his shoulder. From light to darkness... And from darkness to light. When Christ was born, it was in the nighttime. 
And the Bible tells us that there rose up a great light. The shepherds were out of fields by night, tending their flocks. And for them, there was this great light that they were not used to. This was something completely different. It wasn't the moon and it wasn't the sun. It was some other light. And they heard the angels from on high, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. They were told to go to, the, to Bethlehem and go to that stable. And there they would find the newborn king. And they went. The shepherds went. The first ones that had the, the privilege and the opportunity to see the face of the Lord Jesus besides his own earthly father and mother. Well, he had no earthly father but an earthly mother, of course. It was dark and it became light. When Christ was crucified, now let's, now let, let's get this thing clear. When God is in control, out of darkness will come forth light. When man wants to take control, it wants to go back into darkness again. That's the old sinful nature of man that causes that to happen. I enjoy the laws of physics, and I always have, and I've studied it all my life, and it's an interesting study. I enjoy it and so forth. But it's just a God-made, God-given thing. And whether we understand all of it or not doesn't make any difference. We don't need to. We don't have to. All we need to know is that I have a soul and you have a soul. And the Lord loves that soul. And God wants you in his heaven someday. And he wants to be there. You have you there in the midst of that wonderful light of which there is no sun. There's no moon. There's no stars. There is no shadow, no variableness of turning. It is a beautiful light. There are no shadows in heaven. There are no shadows in heaven. You don't need to look behind you and worry about your shadow following you. There are no shadows in heaven because that light is everywhere. When God is in control, out of darkness comes forth light. I want this all, all of this to have this impressed on our minds. When man gets into control, the carnal nature of man is what we're talking about. Then out of, the light, out of light, it wants to go back to darkness again. The day that Christ was crucified, he died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, if I have it quite right there. And, you know, there was an earthquake. There was a darkness. And the people were frightened. They should have been. And that mob couldn't get out of there fast enough and everybody go home to his own place. It was over and done with for them. And the deed was done. The deed was done. If the world in its wisdom... Paul makes this statement somewhere in the Corinthians... Can't quite pull up the reference right now. But Paul says in, in his uh, letter to the Corinthians, he makes a statement that if the world in its wisdom, if the world in its wisdom would have known God and understood God in his wisdom, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And I find that to be a very profound statement. Yes, I do. Why? Well... It was Jesus who said on the cross, called upon his father and said, forgive them, Lord. They know not what they do. They know not what they do, and they didn't. Well, it could not be man. That was impossible for man to be able to generate his own salvation somehow, some way. And so it had to be man, evil men, ungodly men, sinful, wicked men, to, that it took to crucify the Lord of glory, get the grim, horrible business over and done with, but it brought salvation into the world. He was the sheep, he was the lamb that taketh away the sins of this world. <clears throat> there has been, when am I supposed to be done? <laughs> that clock. Gaining ground on me. Um, there's a songwriter. That wrote these words. Could we with ink the ocean fill. And were the skies of parchment made. And every stalk on earth a quail. And every man ascribed by Tade. To write the love of God above. Would drain the ocean dry. Nor would his scroll contain the whole. Though stretched from sky to sky. I hardly know how anybody could take it any further than that. I'm going to turn to Revelations chapter 19. We want to take, go on a little journey here before we bring this all to a close. 
And uh, chapter 19 in Revelation. The word of God in the battle with the beast. I think we'll start in verse 9 when he said unto me, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And in verse 10, And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not, I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And then in verse 11, I always love this. Uh, this, it seems like this, this verse just does something to me, charges my batteries, you might say. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And it says, In righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew by himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen and clean and out of his mouth goeth forth his sharp sword goeth his sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of almighty God and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written king of kings and lord of lords getting back to verse 13 and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. Years ago, we moved from Thomas, Oklahoma up to Kelowna, Iowa. I was three years old in March when we moved and four years old that summer in August. Soon after we moved there, my parents went and bought a good Bible story book, and I've so often been glad that they did. That was my first experience with a book. And my older sister could read, and so she read it to me. She was uh, four years older than I was, so... If I was four, she was eight, so she could read. Oh, then she read it to me. And all those wonderful stories of the Old Testament and of the creation, you know, and of the flood. And every now and then, we had one of these big, nice, gloss, uh, shiny uh, pages, uh, pictures in color. And that really, that really adds spice to any good book like that. It puts something into your mind as how as the artist's conception of how this possibly could have looked. Well, I am thinking right now of the young boy called Joseph. And it seemed like from, his t from the time that he was born, from the time that he was born, he was a young man of destiny. He did not know what his destiny was going to be. Young boys, you are sitting here in the front row this morning. You don't know what your destiny is going to be. But God may have called you something that you have the slightest idea of for now yet. I know I didn't at that age. How little did I know? My mother knew some things, but she wouldn't tell. She wouldn't have told me that at that age for sure. Anyway, that didn't come until years later. But the young boy called Joseph was born of the favorite wife of his father, Jacob. We had a, heard a little bit read this morning in the uh, devotion, I think, about Jacob. No time to go into all that. Although I'd like to, I sure would enjoy it to, but I like the story of Jacob and his brother Esau and how Jacob got that blessing. And he was supposed to have it. God wanted him to have it. That is true enough. But I don't, uh, may I say this, Rebecca would not have needed to go at it to do what she did in order to see to it that he got it. That could have been done in some better way. Shall we just leave it right there? All right, so Joseph was supposed to have that blessing. Jacob was supposed to have it. And 
Jacob got married, uh, had this, uh, this, um, this girl called Rachel, finally, after he had married her older sister first. That's the way it went. And he got Rachel too yet. And of course, she was the, his dearly beloved from the one he had wanted in the first place. And from Rachel was born this son called Joseph. It's no wonder that his heart was bound up, his life was bound up in the life of the child. It's no wonder. There's no reason to have any long discussion on that subject. <clears throat> I think we can all understand that. <clears throat> but his older brethren, they saw his, their father, that his, his own life was bound up in the life of this young boy. Why could not those old brothers just rejoice with him? <clears throat> Why couldn't they? But they didn't. And you know something, folks? It was necessary for Joseph to eventually end up in Egypt anyway. It was approved to be the salvation of his father's house. And it proved to be just that. So it's a marvelous thing. It's a wonderful thing. God's ways are mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. So then, they began to, Joseph... As he grew up, he started having these dreams that he didn't understand. And he, he started relaying these dreams, and it made his brothers angry. This dream of their sheaves bowing to his sheaf, and of all the sun and the moon and the stars bowing to him, to his star, whatever. And even his father rebuked him for it. Are, are we and all our family to bow yet to you? Well, that's eventually what happened. Nobody had any knowledge of it. It's what, how it would all come about. But that, that awful time, a time who knew how that day would ever end up, when the Father sent the Son. Now get this, the Father sent the Son to go see how it was with his brethren. God sent his Son to this earth to see how it is with us. And what happened? He came into his own, and his own received him not. Joseph went out to see his brothers. He found them, and he came into his own, and his own received him not. They were his older brothers, and they hated him. Why? Because their father loved him. Why couldn't they just love him too? That would have been simple enough, easy enough. But no, they chose to hate. Well, they had sin in their lives. What was wrong? They had some, some evil, sinful things in their life that were supposed to be that nobody else knows it. Knows it. You know how that works? Yes, that's just the way it is. Okay, here he comes from a distance. Oh, there comes the dreamer. There comes the dreamer. Let us just avenge ourselves on him and we will once see what becomes of his dreams. Well... Reuben, he was not, he was the oldest. He wasn't quite too sure about all this. We'll just put him in this pit here and we'll go eat our dinner and then we'll decide what to do with him later on. Reuben got called away to go do something else and he wasn't there when the rest of this stuff took place. But after a while, here comes this caravan of traders and they were Ishmaelites from the land of Midian and that makes them Midianites and Ishmaelites both. And they were the descendants of uh, of Ishmael, who was a half-brother to, uh, to Isaac. So these, technically, if you follow the generations, they were second cousins to each other. So they were relatives. So they knew each other. They knew of each other. <clears throat> so, okay, we've got a younger brother here, and he's just a real troublemaker, and we like to get rid of him, and could we just sell him to you? And uh, the others had said they wanted to kill him anyhow, but Judah intervened, and he said, no, 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 let's not, let's not have blood on our hands. Let's just sell him to Egypt and uh, let the slave traders have him and do with him whatever they want, and then we'll see once what becomes of his dreams. How little did they know that the day would come when they, all of them, all of them would be down on their knees before this second highest ruler in the land of Egypt, begging and pleading for their very lives. How could they know? They did not know. But what they did pull off that day when they sold Joseph to the traders, they took that coat of many colors that his father had given him. They tore that thing up into pieces. They rubbed it around in the dirt and they slaughtered a kid from the flock and they mixed the blood yet in with the dirt. It made it look terrible. 
and they take this coat home to their father and they say, Father, is this thy son Joseph's coat? Why, of course it was. Anybody could see that. And the father did exactly what he, they wanted him to do, was believe that a wild animal, a ravening beast, had destroyed Joseph, eaten him up, devoured him, whatever. And all hope went out of that father's life for the life of his son, Joseph. And he went, he said, my soul will go down in mourning to the grave. And he could not, and he would not be comforted. Terrible thing for them, those sons to do. How could those hardened hearts sit there, stand there day after day and watch their father suffer in mourning for the, for the departure of his son? And they knew all about it. They knew all about it. Now I want to I bring a, this verse here in Revelation to your attention, boys. And that is what we have right here. It goes back from the Old Testament to the New and the New to the Old. And here is this verse that says that this man that was on the white horse riding through heaven and he is clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. All right, is this Christ? Did he suffer bleeding? Did he suffer a death on a cross? Yes, he did. It's a historical fact. We don't even need to accept it by faith if we don't want to because it is a historical fact that this actually did happen. It's, in, it's a, uh, written up in the annuals in the Vatican in Rome. These were records that were given to, uh, to uh, 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 Caesar, uh, what was his name now? Augustus, I believe, or maybe Tiberius. It was Tiberius, I think. So it is a written record that it happened. We have the identity here, very clear. The one who is riding through heaven on that white horse is clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And he's got an all-seeing eye. He knows where I'm at. He knows where you're at in all of this. Do you believe it? You're old enough to believe it. I think so. Young girls, are you old enough to believe it? I think so. He rode through heaven with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name was called the Word of God. The Word of God. Go back to the days of Jacob. His boys came with that vesture dipped in blood. Is this thy son Joseph's coat? Of course it was. It was an identification factor. We have Christ clearly identified in the book of Revelation. We know who he is. And in the Old Testament we have as well. The prophecy of old became a forerunner of what was accomplished later on in the new. In the new. Lord have mercy upon all of us. May we receive that divine mercy that comes from above, made possible upon the one <clears throat> who laid down his life. The New Testament tells us that the greater love hath no man than that he give his life for his friends. Jesus did not just give his life for his friends, but he gave his life for his enemies. During World War II, there were these soldiers, uh, British soldiers in Singapore, and the island was run over by the Japanese, and they captured a, a large army. And they took them inland through Thailand and into Cambodia, and they had a large prison camp in there, what was then called French Indochina. And I have a book at home called the Valley, Through the Valley of the Khoi. And one day, those Japanese soldiers were, of course, were heathen. But they also knew that the British knew and their religions were Christian and that they knew about Christ the Savior. And one day there was a work detail and this young British soldier, his name, last name was Miller. They called him Dusty Miller. I think that's what they called him. And the Japanese soldiers dearly loved to just find an occasion against somebody to just a reason to kill him. And they took a shovel and they hit it. And when they counted the shovels, that, that evening when it was time to go home from work, they built this railroad called the Railroad of Death. So they, they did a lot of work by hand with just shovels, building railroad grade. 
One shovel was missing. There was 40 men on that work detail. And who, who mislaid the shovel? Nobody really had. They just hit it themselves. They wanted an occasion to get something started. And so, young man, it troubles me a little bit that you're smirking and laughing like you are. I'm used to calling children down when you see this going on too long. Would you please stop it? Do me a favor. And yourself a favor as well. Anyway, this... Uh, these soldiers, they said, okay, if you don't know what became of that shovel or who mislaid it, he said, we're going to shoot all of you, all 40 of them. And they would have. They would have. And finally, this young fellow called Miller stepped up and he said, you can say that I mislaid it. Don't shoot all of them. You can just shoot me. Then they said, shooting is too good for you. We'll just crucify you like they crucified that Jesus in whom you believe. And would you know, they took sledgehammers and spikes and they nailed that young man to the nearest tree. And that's where he died. Died because of what he believed. Greater love hath no man than that he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus died for his enemies. He rides through heaven today. He's sitting on the white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. He has a name written that no man knew but himself, but it reveals that name later, clothed with a vesture, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Jesus, the light of the world, the one that has brought us out of darkness into that marvelous light. I guess I'm done. Shall we kneel together in prayer? Our dear Father God, as we come before you this day, we are thankful, Lord, for your grace and your mercies, which is every morning new and great is your faithfulness. And as we abide in your presence and in your love, may we spread that love abroad to others. And be willing to, be, to spend and to be spent in the life of your service that you have brought us to and have called us to. Each and every one of us in a special way. Those of us that are the message bearers and those of us that are the listeners. And from the older down to the very youngest. To those that sit in the back, those that sit on the front benches and all of us in between. Lord, may this worship service be something that is dedicated to you, to your honor, and to your glory. Help us to keep a hold and, and stay a hold of that heavenly vision that you have given and prepared for all of us, that Jesus, the light of the world, is coming soon. And before the, uh, the eyes of all men, that one day and some time, there will be a great light that comes out of much darkness and there will be many trumpets sounded and there will be a herald coming on and that Jesus himself would appear with these thousands upon thousands of angels receiving his own unto himself and taking us away with him home into that eternal glory. Again, dear Father, may we rest in hope of this blessed occurrence. May we be there and our children and our grandchildren and great-grandchildren, all of us, taking part of that heavenly and that wonderful glory. May this be people that are scattered abroad the earth like, like the Lord himself says in Isaiah, sitteth upon the circle of the earth of which the grasshopper, people are as grasshoppers, yet there are many, 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 and yet they all have souls, Lord, that are precious in your sight. We have to marvel at the wonderful thing about all of this beyond our understanding and comprehension, but yet we believe it to be true. Bless us each and every one of us in this place as we go from this place with your blessing. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.